Hello and welcome. My name is Robert Buffard and this is the Robert Stotts MovieCast. Uh, today I'm joined again by Aaron Schweitzer from the Sif Pop Writers Room. Aaron, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's uh, It's been a struggle to get here, but here we are. And, uh, you know, a couple a new pair of pants and a couple napkins later and <laughs> I'm excited to talk some movies with you. Just for clarity, you spilled your drink on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, my drink didn't spill on myself. It just fizzed over. <laughs> right, but it was just your drink, nothing else. And that's why you had to change your pants. <laughs> so now that we now that we've gotten off to a very smooth start, today's official topic is Brad Bird and his filmography. Um he's got six films, and we'll get into those and we'll get into talking about each one of them. Uh, but before that, we're going to be getting into some questions for Aaron that's going to turn into some discussion between the two of us. Um, first of all, my main question is, since we've already done some get-to-know-you questions because you've been on a few times in the past, I have some fun ones to do. Uh, you collect Blu-rays like I do, and in the way that you have them organized, what are a couple of your best like one-two punches? So like this movie comes after this and this excludes franchises. So you can't say star Wars episode four and episode five. So what, what are some of your favorite little runs that you have going on your shelves? Man, this is a question that I've thought about several different occasions. And so I came prepared. I tried to limit it to just a back to back, like you said. Uh, but there are some times that are just a, a huge long stretch of list uh, that I consider near and dear to my heart. And uh, uh, I mean, the short answer for this question is going to be quiz show back to back with the raid, the first raid, um, and then the raid two kind of. So if we're lumping them together, uh, right. just because those are two very different movies, but those are both in my top 100. Um, the raid is a little higher, um, but I think quiz show is definitely one of the better movies. And we'll be talking quiz show and soap pop writers room next uh, year uh, during our goats segment. But uh uh, man, that's that's two excellent movies. Very, very different movies. Very well acted, uh, and uh, that's I think that's the best one-two punch I could get of uh, of being, you know, back-to-back movies on my shelf. Nice. Um, I've got a lot of a lot of examples of runs, like more than more than two, and I also have my main answer. So I think we can go back and forth for a little bit if you want. Let's do it. I'll give. I'll give my main answer, like you said, quiz show in the raid. Mine is going to be, <laughs> mine's going to be Paddington Two, followed by Parasite. Um, I've recently been adding some Blu-rays to my collection, meaning that the the ones around the ones I've been adding have been moving. And at one point, I had to move padding, or I had to move Parasite to the next shelf so that they were separated. Oh no! And I just. I, I couldn't stand looking at it. I had to just go out and buy one more Blu-ray <laughs> that came before the letter P so that my, my favorite one-two punch could be could be next to each other. But right now, Parasite and Paddington 2, they are they are together, and I don't have to worry about them breaking up anytime soon. <laughs> you know, those are that's a pretty terrific back-to-back. Those are actually both movies that I own digitally. So I prefer to collect physical because I know it will always be there. And frankly, you know, you need internet to do digital movies. And, you know, if the internet goes bad or if you're having a slow day or something, 
Plus, just in general, they look and sound better. Physicals do. So yeah. uh, I prefer, but sometimes the cheaper route is digital. And um, I don't particularly mind saving a couple bucks to do a digital, especially if it's a movie that I'm not like really dying to get my hands on. Um, I probably have half of my collection on digital. That's Some of those overlap to physical, though. Uh, some of those are just physicals that came with the digital code, and some of those are some I bought directly um, via digital or used the code and then resold the Blu-ray after a certain amount of time because I had oh, never yeah. seen the movie when I had bought it. Um, but decided it has those special features and it's, you know, it's not one of my favorite favorites, so I can, you know, but, um, anyway, the, I have a, I have quite an extensive list and I'm going to save my super long stretch until you just tell me, all right, here's the time that you can go for it. Uh, I'm going to kind of bounce around here a little bit because, um, it. I want to go for some of the ones I think are kind of second or third best. Uh, let's start with, uh, saving private Ryan and Schindler's list. And I have both of these on 4K, so that's a that's a stellar back to back. That yeah, that's not a bad one. And for me, just to talk about my collection real quick, because I guess I haven't talked about my Blu-ray collecting on the podcast yet, is I have a lot of DVDs still. I think eventually I'll be uh, switching out DVDs for Blu-rays. But a lot of my original collection started as DVDs because I didn't have a Blu-ray player for a long time until maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, in, in that time, I've bought a lot of Blu-rays, uh, but I still have a decent chunk of my collection in DVD. And that does bother me because my reason for collecting is that I love just seeing them all laid out next to each other on the shelf. You can ask my parents. I didn't play with toys as much as just set up toys because I liked to have the different setups and see how they look and then just admire my work. And I'm still the same way with collecting you know, Funko Pops, action figures. Uh, blu-rays so i don't ever go i personally don't ever go digital exclusive because i just like having the physical blu-ray to put out in my living room and being able to see it all at once it's kind of part of the decoration of the living room um i also haven't counted what i have because i'm weird and one day i want to count them all and kind of impress myself with how many i have but i have at least a couple hundred i would say um I, that's just a ballpark. I couldn't give you anything close to exact because I'm holding myself back from counting. Um, but I'll go, you just gave a, a shorter one. So I'll give a couple short ones. Also, I have the breakfast club followed by Brooklyn, two very different movies, but two that I love a lot. Um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind followed by ex machina, two mm-hmm. nice science fiction movies. But I, again, I love them both pretty much anything I have. I either like a lot or love. I don't do a lot of blind buys. Um, Goodwill Hunting, followed by The Graduate, followed by Grand Budapest Hotel. My my G run would have been a lot longer if I hadn't done a blind buy of the 2014 Godzilla. And hey, I like Godzilla. I, I just couldn't get into that one. So if that one wasn't there, I would have a nice, a longer run there, but... Those are a few of my shorter ones. What else What else you got? Yeah, I'll go ahead and do the rest of my kind of one-two punches. Uh, and I don't typically do a lot of blind buys either unless it's over, like unless it's under five bucks. Um, yeah. But uh, this one that I'll give next is the exception uh, because we're going inside out and the insider. And the insider was definitely a blind buy, but it was recommended so much from podcasts I listen to. Um, and frankly, that's really the only way I expand my collection anymore is just new releases and or hidden gems that I somehow never heard about or just decided 
you know, I didn't, I wasn't interested in at the moment. But um, I'm gonna go Ford v Ferrari uh, and combo that with forgetting Sarah Marshall. Um, those are, yeah, those are both sweet spot for me. Um, I love how you can have two movies back to back that you really love that are completely different. Right, right. Um, and like you know, Ford v Ferrari may be recency bias. I've only seen it the once, but. Uh, I've seen oh, great. I've seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Yeah, I'd probably pop it in every six months or so. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with one of my personal favorites here on this list, and that's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang combined with uh, Knives Out. That's uh man, that's a crazy good like crime comedy back to back. Um, that are Is very Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Guy Ritchie. No, it's um, um Shane Black. Uh, oh, okay. They all have similar kind of styles, and I haven't seen a lot from any of them, and I want to see more. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is probably very closely connected to The Nice Guys um, gotcha. in terms of its style and tone and all that, and it stars Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Um, right. So, man, that's a very two different action crime comedies, or crime comedies, back to back. And then I have two other kind of twos, and that's uh, La La Land with The Last Samurai, and the town and the Toy Story saga. Nice, the town. That's another one. The town and Toy Story. <laughs> right. You're gonna get two different movies, but they're still both incredible. Uh, I'll finish up my my shorter ones. Also, I'll go 22 Jump Street, 500 Days of Summer, and About Time. And then that's kind of probably my personal preference. I don't know how many people really love About Time as much as I do, but I I have that up there as top four. As you. So copywriters room, if you want to hear exactly where it, where it lands. <laughs> um, I have a nice little run in the bees with Big Lebowski, Big Short, Big Sick, Birdman, Black Swan, Blood Diamond. Uh, I like that, that little grouping. Um, I also have one with Knives Out, and this is one of my favorite threes in a row of Knives Out, La La Land, and the, the Lego movie. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, crime comedies, one of my favorite movies of all time, and then one of my favorite animated movies of all time slash favorite movies of all time. Sure. Um, and then my last two short ones are Step Brothers followed by Superbad. And that is possibly my one-two punch for comedies of all time. And I just love that they that they follow each other in my collection. Okay. Superbad is definitely my favorite. Um, other than The Hangover. Forgot about The Hangover. But Superbad is definitely top two or three. You know, if we're talking just comedies, then probably forgetting Sarah Marshall and Superbad is it for me. That's that's awesome. Yep. Yeah, Superbad is for sure in Sarah there. Marshall again. Uh, yeah, Superbad. I just love it. That's one that I saw a bunch of times in college, and I've seen a bunch of times since then. It just perfect, perfect, perfect. And yeah, I want to watch Forgetting Sarah Marshall again. I saw it one time, really liked it, and I need to show my wife because she likes the. She likes the kind of raunchy comedies like that. Yeah. And it would be perfect for her. Man, I tell um, you, I've never wanted a spinoff more than I've wanted a Bill Hader and Seth Rogen as cops and Superbad spinoff. <laughs> They're the best part of that movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. Other than Michael Sarah being Michael Sarah, because I can relate to his awkwardness. And that's why I love Michael Sarah in that movie. But one of my favorite lines from Superbad while we're on the topic <laughs> is when Bill Hader quotes Yoda and he goes, that's Yoda from attack of the clones. (laughs) I don't think anyone I've ever watched that with has understood why that is so hilarious, but I love from attack of the clones and his Bill Hader voice. 
just completely perfect. I think my favorite line from that movie, and I don't know what it is, is uh, <laughs> is something about whenever they're on the bus and they encounter the homeless guy again, and he just like is clearly drunk. And he looks at McLovin and he goes, McMuffin. <laughs> I don't I don't know why, but it gets me every time. <laughs> Because Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg come up with these just ridiculous, hilarious, like, one-off right. things. And it's so perfect. I love Superbad so much. Um, um, I have I have one, yeah, I have one three punch, uh, and then I have a long run, and then a super long run. Uh, Let's I, hear it. I assume that kind of you were, you were done with yours, right? Did yeah, they- I have just a couple more of my absolute favorite runs, so go for it. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to go with... Um, this is uh, my three run. This is Dunkirk, Easy A, and Edge of Tomorrow, back to back to back. Um, I just rewatched Easy A. That mo- I didn't realize how perfect that movie is. I loved it the first few times I saw it, but I hadn't seen it in a while. Rewatched it. Absolutely loved it. 10 out of 10. Same. I had the same experience. Nice. Uh, then I'm going to go to a pretty long run here at the F's uh, in a while. So we're going to start off with The Fugitive. And then moved to Fury, and then The Game, um, David Fincher in the 90s, uh, Game Night, The Gangs of New York, uh, Get Out, Ghostbusters, the, just the original, um, Gifted, Gladiator, Glass, which at me, I don't care, I love that movie. <laughs> it's um, solid. Um, Glory, A Glory Road, uh, Go, which also was a blind buy because they can't stop talking about it on Simcast. And yes, you should watch it. Uh, and I'll go the Godfather trilogy. Um, I mean, yes, that does have three in it, but I think that one or two were so good that it's still in the conversation. Uh, and also because sure. I got to get to Gone Baby Gone and Gone Girl. Nice. I've got the Gone Baby Gone, Gone Girl back to back also. Yeah. Uh, but that's the one that had Godzilla in there or else it would have been a longer, well, sure. a longer streak. Do you, do you want to do some more of yours, or do you want me to do my super long one? Um, first, I want to comment that even though The Godfather technically breaks the rules I set out, there's only a couple after, and you have a nice long run anyway, so I'll yeah. allow it. Well, I'm going to um, break the run in my... I'm going to break that rule in my other really long run, too, so... Fine, I guess I won't kick you off the podcast. <laughs> um, I'll do a couple more of mine, then get, get to your really long one. Okay. We got... For me, Mean Girls, Memento, Midsommar, Mission Impossible. Uh, I I think that's a pretty spectacular gold standard right there. Um, this one is pr- maybe the highest batting average, just like overall quality of Inception, The Incredibles, Inglori- Inglorious Bastards, Inside Lou and Davis. Um, I may be in the minority of loving Inside Lou and Davis, but that's one of my very favorite Cohen brothers. And then I think the other three kind of speak for themselves for how great they are. Sure. Um, then we'll go. My last one before my really long one will be American sniper, anchorman, a quiet place, Argo arrival, a star is born. And that's the recent, a star is born. It's pretty solid all the way around. So go for your super long one. And then I'll go for my, final one okay now there's gonna be a couple in here that are gonna make you be like you know really like that's in the run but like they may not be my favorites but they definitely don't i think deter the run so uh i'm I'm gonna start with uh the lion king the uh the original 
and then move to the Little Mermaid and then Little Miss Sunshine. Uh, then Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, Logan Lucky, Lone Survivor, The Lookout, Looper, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, The Losers, Lucky Number Eleven, McGruber, uh, oh, Mad Max, <laughs> The Road Warrior, Mad Max Fury Road, um, Maleficent. Uh, I know that's that's kind of the one, uh, but my it's near and dear to my wife's heart, and I own it pretty much because of her. But I don't think it's bad enough to ruin a run. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Uh, Man of Steel, Man on Fire, Manchester by the Sea, The Martian, the MCU. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, the Matrix trilogy, uh, Mean Girls, Men in Black, Mick Max, which I've talked about in some Pop Riders Room. Minority Report, Miracle, uh, Mission Impossible, just three, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout. I don't like one and two very much. Uh, Moana, Molly's Game, Monty Python, Holy Grail, Monty Python, Life, Life of Brian, Moneyball, uh, Monsters University, Monsters, Inc., Moon, and Mr. Brooks. That's, yeah, that's a solid list. You did break the rule a few times, but I, I still think if you collectively count each of those series, especially the MCU... Then, uh, right. then it works. So and here's the here's the thing that I think is really interesting is like, I, and I'm curious when you say your list, what are the two movies that break that? Like, and it's interesting because it's you know it's we're talking about a difference in quality in terms of like these are good but not necessarily like excellent or great. And uh, the the ones that break that for me are um, Lilo and Stitch two at the top because you have to buy it in a double pack if you want it on Blu-ray. Oh, and. Uh, I guess if I wanted to play my my rules, I could say that. But I don't think you know. I love Lilo and Stitch, but I don't think it's you know ten out of ten amazing, excellent. Uh, so that's the one that kind of breaks it at the one end, and then at the other end is um, Mr. Deeds. Hmm. Um, I would uh, I would like to make an amendment if I could, because I just realized that Mr. Deeds does not actually sit there on the shelf next to it because it's in a combo with Big Daddy, which sits at the <laughs> end. So I'm going to make a, an amendment that goes uh, Mulan, The Muppets, Christmas Vacation, National Treasure, uh, Newsies, The Nice Guys, The Night Before, Nightmare Before Christmas, No Country for Old Men. And that's where I'll stop it because the next one is Noah. Noah, I love that movie. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I can't even get to that full sentence seriously. Yeah, that's, that's a nice long list. Um, mine's not nearly that long. That seems like it's about a tenth of my whole collection right there. <laughs> I have um, uh, I have about 1,100 movies total. Between digital and... Between physical. digital and physical, and I would say probably close to 750 of them are physical. Yeah, you definitely have more. You definitely have more than me. Yeah. A lot more than me. Um, even without my my having counted. Yep. So I'll give my, my run real quick. And I think I'm going to extend what I had written down because since you broke the rules, I'm going to break the rules as well. And it doesn't extend it very long, but I'm going to just add two to the beginning. Um, and that would be starting with The Place Beyond the Pines, followed by the Planet of the Apes trilogy. That's just the modern Planet of the Apes. I don't have uh, any of the older ones. Then this is where it actually started because I didn't start it with Planet of the Apes because of the rule I set out. But the Prestige, Princess Bride, Psycho, Pulp Fiction, Ready or Not, Rear Window, Reservoir Dogs, The Revenant, The Sandlot, and Schindler's List. That's an excellent run. I yes. don't 
I, I don't love Ready or Not, but it's not bad enough to break the list. I don't like it as much as everybody else likes it. See, I felt that way about Ready or Not. It was like, I liked it enough to buy it. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include it on here. Um, and The Sandlot is the other one where that's kind of a, a nostalgic pick. It's, I think it's a great movie still. Yeah. But I don't know if it, if it lives up to what's on its right, which is Schindler's List. Um, and the movies that break the run, which you were asking about, at the beginning of, like the one that came before The Place Beyond the Pines was Pirates of the Caribbean 4 which mm. I love the, the first three Pirates of the Caribbean so much, but I just can't bring myself to say the fourth one is good enough to continue this run. And get this for what comes after Schindler's List. Scooby-Doo meets Batman. Hey, hey, don't you dare diss on Scooby-Doo meets Batman. I, I'm cutting it right, right there after Schindler's List. I, uh, I haven't seen it in forever, but I remember really loving that. I bought... Um, not too long ago, all the like Scooby-Doo DVDs that I used to love as a kid. So yeah. Scooby-Doo meets Batman and the Boo Brothers. And I mean, Zombie Island was always the best. And um, like Scooby-Doo and a thousand Arabian Nights or, Arabian Nights or something like that. Like I, they're hard to find on Blu-ray though. So I just bought them all on DVD. Yeah. Yeah. I This is one that when my parents moved and I was moving out of their house too, it was kind of like, do you want to take any of these movies that we're never going to watch? And I was like, sure, I'll take Scooby-Doo meets Batman. Maybe I'll watch that someday when I'm bored. There you go. But I love how Schindler's List is sandwiched between The Sandlot and Scooby-Doo meets Batman. Man, that's like the two like least serious movies of all time combined with potentially the heaviest movie of all time. <laughs> exactly. That's why as soon as I bought Schindler's List and put it up, I was like, oh, no. So do you have any other Blu-ray runs or notes or thoughts or anything you want to mention about Blu-rays? Uh, I mean, not particularly. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would just encourage you. I mean, I it, it, it's a time commitment. It's a money investment. Uh, but there are ways to do a good job of upgrading DVDs to Blu-rays, and they are worth the upgrade. Um, it is not quite as – well, it, it depends. Um, it's not quite as drastic from when it was VHS to DVD because that was a super drastic yeah. change. Uh, but depending on what kind of setup you have, um, man, the Blu-ray setup, the Blu-rays are totally good. And frankly, at this point, like if you can get any, even if you don't have a 4k Blu-ray player, try to get a 4k Blu-ray, um, copy because eventually they will only have 4k Blu-ray players. Like that'll be the only ones that they make, um, at some point. And frankly, the 4ks are really worth it, especially on like, there are some older transfers that look absolutely stunning. Um, and any movie that has to do with color is like Avengers Endgame is pristine on 4K mm-hmm. and uh, even Infinity War for that matter. Since I know you don't love Endgame that much. Uh, I love Infinity War. But uh, uh, but yeah, even like I picked up like Goodfellas and like even if it's not a picture upgrade, there is certainly audio upgrade. So um, but, you know, do a YouTube review, see if it's actually worth getting the upgrades. But if you're going to go ahead and upgrade, just. I mean, Criterion's about the... First of all, they don't release Criterion's on 4K, but they're also just, like, remastered so well that those aren't probably going to make right. a difference. And you only own one Criterion, so... I do want to encourage people to buy physical media if if that's something that you're even mildly into because stuff doesn't stay on Netflix or HBO or Hulu forever. And if you're going to want to watch it in the future, there's a good chance the only unaltered or unedited version 
is going to be the Blu-ray or DVD or 4K that you pick up and keep on your shelf for however long. Because I've seen what Disney has done to their stuff. They've messed with The Simpsons and how it looks. They've they've even talked about taking some stuff out. There's some stuff with Gone with the Wind earlier on, on HBO Max. So if you want to have like an unedited, untampered with version of a movie, physical media is the way to go. And especially if you're if you have a collector's mindset like I do, and like I assume you do, especially ba- just based on your collection, yeah. Um, then Blu-rays are definitely a worthy investment because I've had people be like, "Why are you buying seventy dollars worth of Blu-rays on Black Friday when everything is just on Netflix?" I'm like, "It's not on Netflix because <laughs> that's why I buy the Blu-rays so I can have what I want to watch whenever I want to watch it." Yeah, and have that investment, you know just there forever well and even though i have an hbo subscription and will probably never not have an hbo subscription at this point um i still buy my favorite shows uh i still buy the new seasons of westworld when they go on sale and i still i bought hbo watchmen the day it came out and i uh i bought the good seasons of true detective and um (laughs) like i even bought game of thrones and it's 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 because you know, that, that offline aspect or that I can loan it to somebody or, yeah. um, or d- special features are a big thing or, um, you know, it just one of a million things. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a big proponent of buying media as well. Yes. Um, I think that we've gushed about physical media and Blu-rays and our collections quite enough. Um, Maybe I can devote a full episode to it one day, but for now, we're going to cut it at about 25 minutes. <laughs> um, so let's move on. I have another question. My question here is, if you can remake one non-IP movie with a modern-day writer-director cast, what would the movie be, and who would you choose to write it and act in it? So uh, this is going to be a callback to Civ Pop Writer's Room because we talked about this a couple, like a month ago, but um, it, it, it is my answer. And I think I pick Rope. Uh, it's either Rope or Rebel Without a Cause. Um, I think Rope is a story I want more people to be familiarized with and has some really good yeah. like moral conversations to be had. But I think Rebel Without a Cause is a good movie that's acted well um, that has a lot of missed potential. Um, so, so those are my two picks. Uh, which one would you like for me to talk about first with a cast? Uh, let's go with rope just because I know you've already talked about it and I'm, I'm interested to hear your changes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I did talk about this on a uh, pop writer's room and I'll keep this brief. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, uh, nine characters in the whole movie. Um, so it's a pretty easy one to, to fantasy cast. Um, and then a writer director who is the same. Um, I've changed, uh, one, two, three of these, uh, for several different reasons, because most of the ones that I did pick were just shoe ins. Um, but, uh, for starters, David is the person that is killed at the very beginning of the movie. And I said, I wanted an A-lister that people could just be like, okay, so I guess, you know, this guy's going to be in the movie and then he's killed in three seconds and I'm not changing it. We're staying, we're sticking with Ryan Gosling, um, just because I want people to, you know, be like, oh, look, it's Ryan Gosling. What? <laughs> like <laughs> they actually killed him. They weren't just like psyching us out. So I want that that effect. Um, and then Brandon and Philip are our two leads. Brandon is the manipulative one, and Philip is the like 
shy little guy. And uh, um, I'm still going to keep uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Brandon and Robert Pattinson as Philip. Um, I think typically these two roles would be reversed, but I want to see each of these actors kind of play that, especially because I don't want to get Pattinson to be typecast because after Tenet and Batman, I think he could be very much typecast to like the macho, smart, you know, action hero. Yeah. Um, yeah I and that. I want to see him a little weak and vulnerable. So nice. Uh, Mrs. Wilson, this is the housekeeper who's uh, got a lot of sass. Uh, she's has some of the funniest moments in the movie. Um, this one I did change uh, to Octavia Spencer, and um, I, I'm good. I'm really good with that change. So she's like, um, so like her character Kenneth, in uh, Shape of Water, then. Yeah, yeah, I would say Shape of Water, um, but also like mixed with maybe a little bit of Ma, which I haven't seen, oh. but give it a give her a little bit of a dark to her. She's freaky um, in that movie. <laughs> I'm sure that's why I haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for Kenneth, I'm keeping this cast. It's Andy Samberg. Um, Kenneth is the um, the best friend of the person who was murdered and ex-boyfriend of David's fiance. Um, so Andy Samberg, primarily based off his performance in Paul Springs. Uh, Janet, I did recast to Janelle Monet because she Hi. deserves better than Antebellum. <laughs> um, and I'm keeping Mr. Kentley, which is Ewan McGregor. And um, I did change Mrs. Altwater. So this I previously had as Jane Lynch for her silly nature. But um, I did decide to change that to Lois Smith, who is not a name that I think people would recognize. But she's the old lady um, that is Misty Mountain's aunt or something like that in The Nice Guys. Okay. and she's kind of the, the the girl like the the grandma that wears coke bottles for glasses and there's right. that one moment where ryan gosling gives you know, a profane word and she was oh <laughs> 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 i just i want that quirk um she's in the scene where they're like where she was saying she just saw her niece across the street or something right yeah yeah she saw her niece uh across the street in the window yeah uh and and then Suke walks up to like the the porno actress, <laughs> the porno young lady. <laughs> uh, and then I'm keeping Rupert as Matthew Rees because I think he'd kill that. And then um, the writer director is still going to be nice. Bong Joon Ho because I can't think of anybody better to do Rope. Perfect. And if you haven't seen Rope, it's a underappreciated Alfred Hitchcock classic starring Jimmy Stewart. Um, I think it's. 110 percent worth your watch it's only like an hour 20 or something like that it's a brisk watch it's intriguing and it's got these great moral questions and we talked about it on sif pop writers room go find it on spotify itunes whatever rate and review share um shameless plugs i'll <laughs> I'll, I'll go with my recast and i always tend to do these as if i have an unlimited budget uh that's how I did rope and we did it on writer's room. And I'm just going to be like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go into my studio executive character like I did last time, but I, I did have a, an unlimited budget for this movie. Um, and it's eternal sunshine of the spotless mind directed by Christopher Nolan, because after tenant, I want Christopher Nolan to kind of slow it down and make a smaller movie. And I think a Charlie Kaufman, sort of script would be perfect for him 
especially this Charlie Kaufman script. Um, I, we mentioned that with Anthony on the Tenet Review pod that Christopher Nolan needs to do something like The Truman Show or Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. And I don't know if he's going to keep the the same Kaufman script or if he should write his own, but keep the same, you know, basic idea and storyline. But I think as soon as I first saw this movie, I thought this is a Christopher Nolan movie, not directed by Christopher Nolan. If I've ever seen one. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't count transcendence because that's crap. Uh, this is truly in the spirit of, of Christopher Nolan. And for the cast, uh, the two leads are going to be two very familiar faces who you've seen in a romantic relationship together in um, in movies before. So with Joel, which is Jim Carrey's character in the actual movie, I'm going with Andrew Garfield and Clementine, which is uh, Rose from Titanic. Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet's character. Why can't I think of Kate Winslet? Uh, for Clementine, we're doing Emma Stone. So Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, they were great in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. They have... Uh, they were in a relationship in real life and they have since broken up. So I think they can play both aspects of the relationship yeah. that are portrayed in eternal sunshine. Um, I also casted Joel's two friends. He has like a couple friend, um, Rob and Carrie played by David cross. And I don't remember the actress's name. It's someone who I haven't seen anyone else in any other movie. And I'm going with Stanley Tucci and Catherine Hahn. And I started off with Catherine Hahn because as soon as I was watching this actress, I said, this is perfect for, for Catherine Hahn. So I just went with those two. Um, and I think that's enough about them because they're not in the movie too much. Patrick, which is Elijah Wood's character. Um, he's kind of this little creepy weirdo uh, who's also kind of funny. Uh, so I went with Will Poulter because solely based off his, his performance in Midsommar, I think he can do the the Elijah Wood kind of thing that, that he's doing in this. Um, and then Mark Ruffalo plays a character named Stan, who's kind of like, we got to do our job, but at the same time invites his girlfriend over and they don't do their job. And that's going to be Donald Glover based on his role from the Martian, because he does that kind of scientist. He knows what he's doing, uh, but he's also, you know, sleeps in, he's got a messy room and all that. So I'm going with Donald Glover. And then, his girlfriend, I'm going to keep um, his couple, his relationship alive from Atlanta and going to go with Zazie Beats. His girlfriend is Mary, originally played by Kirsten Dunst, but I think this would be a great pairing for this remake. And then the last main character is the doctor, the main doctor, um, played by Tom Wilkinson. And come on, who do you think I'm going to choose? It's a Christopher Nolan movie. It's got to be Michael Caine. So there's my cast. Uh, Joel Andrew Garfield, Clementine Emma Stone, Rob Stanley Tucci, Carrie Catherine Hahn, Patrick Will Poulter, Stan Donald Glover, Mary Zazie Beetz, and the Doctor is Michael Caine. Very good. And do you want to go through your Rebel Without a Cause cast real quick? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm a little bit less sure about this one, uh, but I think there's something really interesting in here. It just it this is either going to completely work or completely fail. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's going to be different enough that it's going to stand out um, different from the original, which I think any reboot or remake should maybe try to capture the tone, but not be the same movie. Um, and my, yeah, I've been making some notes here recently and I've definitely scrapped some of the things. So initially I was going to have this written by Damon Lindelof and directed by David Fincher, but um, 
I've I've changed that. Um, and here's here's what I'm doing for the role of Jim. That is the James Dean character. Um, I really want to gender swap this. I wanna I wanna have the oh, same character like in a sense, but I want a rebellious female lead okay. um, in in a movie like this. And um, man, who better than Zendaya? Love it, hundred so, percent. I love it. Yeah, and I was thinking about trying to you know. So if having the Zendaya as Jim character, so I mean, because and I I'm getting this from her Mary Jane performance specifically in Spider Man Homecoming, where she's kind of that like a little bit rebellious. But I wanted to go deeper. I haven't seen Euphoria yet, but I imagine something similar to Euphoria. It's just like Euphoria, and you she's great in Euphoria. Just won the Emmy for it. It is, is a perfect choice. It is on my list and always climbing. Um, so so Zendaya as the Jim character, um, and then for Judy, um, I had a hard time thinking of who could play this role while still being a similar like age to Zendaya. Um, so I decided not to gender swap it. So our, we're going to have two female leads and that might even be a little bit more social things to say socially. Um, and so I'm picking Bridget Lundy Payne, who is from a typical, she's the sister. I can't remember the sister's name right now. And she's also in Bill and Ted face the music as uh, Keanu's daughter. She just is terrific. And um, I want to see her in more things. I didn't see her in anything except for atypical until Bill and Ted. And she was easily the best part of Bill and Ted face the music. So um, yeah, I want to see her in this kind of role. I think that would be, I think, and I think her with Zendaya would be really good to see. Um, so yeah. And then Plato, these are the only three people I cast cause they're really the only three people that are super important, have a ton of screen time. Yeah. Uh, this is the, the kid who essentially tries to become their, their kid after one night, which is, um, we would change that for sure. <laughs> Whether we just completely nix that story arc or we make it take place not in one night. Uh, and for this, I'm picking Julian Dennison. He is in Deadpool two as the the little fat kid. I don't I don't remember what oh, his name yeah. is. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't remember his name either. And he's definitely in Hunt for the Wilder People, yep. and he is terrific in that movie. And uh, he was the first person I thought of if we're making a modern day Plato. <laughs> I love it, love it. Um, you're doing exactly what you need to do with a modern day remake and putting a spin on it that'll make it like its own thing, but kind of keep the similar spirit and keep the inspiration. So I, I love what you're doing. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, and so this one is going to be directed by Taika Watiti. <laughs> and I wouldn't have made that pick, but because he has shown the capacity to do serious as well yeah. as funny. I mean, I think everybody kind of was introduced to him. Uh, well, everybody really knew who he was by the time Thor Ragnarok came around. And that was my first exposure to him. But then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, I'm watching what we do in the shadows and that's terrific. Mm-hmm. I'm watching hunt for the wilder people. And that's terrific. And I even went back and watched boy and that's even really good. Um, but I think, I think, I think because he did Jojo rabbit, I think he has the capacity to really have some, some serious conversations, some serious social commentary and, um, and, uh, just a serious emotional level. This is this is the part where I said it's going to either work or fail based off of this. Um, and I, I trust Taika enough to do it right based off of Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny that I said this is a perfect way to put your own spin on it. Then you said Taika Waititi. I was like, man, that is very different. 
but I'd be I'd be down for it. I don't love Jojo Rabbit, but I appreciate what he's doing. And I think he can do something serious when he's not playing Hitler. So I w- yeah, um, I would want him to. He could take a role on it if he want, maybe the sheriff. But um, I would want this to be a little bit more serious than Jojo Rabbit, which is yeah. I would I would want this to be more like Boy. That's the one that I haven't seen. I've seen what we do in the shadows and hunt for the wilder people. I just haven't found Boy anywhere. It's on Prime. Um, Oh, is it? I'll have to see that soon then. Uh, yeah, um, I, I like it. Very, very good. Thanks. Um, so before we finally get into Brad Bird, I just have a couple of this or that questions for you. You don't know any of these ahead of time. There's three. Um, and it's based on a cursory look at your favorite movies list on Letterboxd. Um, I'm going to kind of give you some uh, some options based on what I saw there. Okay. Number one, Damien Chazelle versus Ryan Johnson. Oh, man, you're breaking my heart. Um, this is what I love to do to guests. It's like, don't make me choose that. Ryan Johnson. Um, <laughs> they're both they're both different than most people in Hollywood. Um I just mm. see this is also hard because this is hard because Ryan Johnson's also been in the in the industry for twenty years and Damien Chazelle has had a couple of hits. Um, You know, I I will change my answer to Damien Chazelle only because um, he is a little bit more unique, and I feel like the film industry is a little bit different without his presence. And not to say that Mm -hmm. Ryan Johnson is is you know would would be different without his presence, but. Um, especially if he was still writing stuff or whatnot. Like, I think that I don't know that Ryan Johnson could do a musical. Um, so Ryan Johnson, right. if you're listening, um, I want Knives Out well, to, to be a musical. <laughs> Ryan Johnson, he's done noir with Brick. He's done Star Wars. He's done sci-fi fantasy. He's done murder mystery. He's like amorphous when it comes to genre. So you know, well, twenty years down the road, I wouldn't be surprised to see him do a musical with Joseph Joseph Gordon Levitt or something. And if First Man hadn't come out, then I might go back just because I would say Damien Chazelle ha- is kind of in that one track. But First Man is such yeah. a uniquely different movie, um, and it's still incredible. So nice, and we'll talk about those in a couple months. Oh yeah, um, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. DCEU versus MCU. MCU. That's not hard. Yeah. Um, I was kind of scrambling for this or that because I've had you on a few times and I forgot to do it until we started the show. Um, last one. We're going to go with Battle of Spy Movies, Bond versus Mission Possible. Bond. Bond. Nice. Uh, especially the modern era. I think the Daniel Craig ones are terrific and even the not so good ones get better with rewatches except for Quantum of Solace. Um, that one doesn't. That one's just not a good movie at all. Uh, but... Uh, I th- I think also I think Mission Impossible is complete. Uh, gosh, they're both full of tropes, um, <laughs> but I think Bond's a more interesting character than Ethan Hunt. That's totally fair. Yeah, and I feel nice. like there are other. Well, I feel, yeah. Anyway, nice. I'm not going to fault you there, though. I've only seen two Bond movies ever, um, but we'll be talking about more on Ready's Room. Uh, and to go back to the Blu-ray conversation. Q is the only letter I don't have a movie of in my collection. So I'm 
about this close to just buying Quantum of Solace, even though I haven't seen it just to have a Q movie. And because why not have James Bond movies? But we're 50 minutes into this podcast and we haven't gotten <laughs> to our main topic yet. So let's talk about Brad Bird for a little bit. Okay. Um, his birthday is September 24th. And today is September 24th, as in today, the day we're, we are recording this. But at six days before uh, the episode is going to come out. So I've been playing a little fast and loose with birthdays in relation to when the episode actually releases lately. And I don't really care because I can do what I want because it's my podcast. Um, yell at me on the internet if you want. I say that <laughs> all the time. And no one has yet. So I'm, <laughs> still, I'm still in good shape. Brad Bird, I think he makes great animation. And he's even made the transition to live action a bit in the last few years. But I think his strength is still animation. And we'll get into that. Um, I talked about, obviously, a couple of these when I did my Pixar episode way back at the beginning of my podcast in March. Um, but we'll get into a decent conversation because there's two people and it's not just me sitting in front of a microphone, which I do not prefer when recording a podcast. Um, so I'm going to ask you, what is the first Brad Bird movie that you saw? I was thinking about this and um, it's either The Iron Giant or The Incredibles. I want to say The Iron Giant, um, but the, the Incredibles came out in 2002, I think. Yes. So I was seven at the time. So if I had seen the Iron Giant before it, I don't know that I really remember it, but I do think I'd seen the Iron Giant several times before the Incredibles, but I saw the Incredibles two or three times in theaters. Nice. Uh, and just a quick fact check. I looked it up while you were talking. Incredibles is 04. Okay. Uh, that was going to be I, my other guess. I looked it up earlier today. I don't know why I confirmed 2002 when I had just seen it, but for me, it has to be the Incredibles. Um, I haven't, I hadn't seen the Iron Giant until maybe last year, for whatever reason. Um, it was my wife Laura's one of her favorite movies. She said she watched it every time she was homesick from school, um, and she just had to watch it with me. And yeah, I liked it, and we'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah. But for me, my first Brad Bird movie was definitely The Incredibles. It's other than um, Jonah, a VeggieTales movie, <laughs> I think. The Incredibles might have been one of my first in-theater experiences that I can really remember because I was eight. I really don't remember going to the movie theater a lot when I was that that young. Um, but I remember seeing like the Happy Meal toys because, you know, as a kid, you remember that sort of thing um, and seeing merchandising in stores when you're there with your parents. It's just, you know, it's just that kind of mindset for me when I think about The Incredibles brings me back to being a little kid um so it's definitely the first one that i saw yeah as for brad bird as a director um i i asked what draws you to him and i'll answer that first and i normally i pick people to examine on this podcast that i really really love you know like uh christopher nolan or uh donald gleason for example but i didn't really I don't really love Brad Bird. Like I can't say he's one of my favorites, but I also incredibly respect his work and his talent. Um, I didn't really have an answer for like, or a, a topic for this week's podcast until I started looking through his filmography and noticed his birthday and realized that I liked almost all of his movies. Um, upon re upon rewatches, I found them to be very smart, and very mature, even though most of them are animation. And I think that's pretty much his strength. So what about you? What draws you to him? Yeah, well, um, so first of all, this this episode was supposed to be about Emma Stone. 
uh, when I signed yes. up for it, and it's fitting that we got her in there. And uh, and when we made the switch to Bad Bird, Brad Bird, I wasn't mad about that because he has one of the best track records for movies, like and their quality. Um, I think the first time I ever noticed a movie was made by Brad Bird was Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, and it's because after I walked out of the theater, I was like, I gotta know who made this, and I didn't recognize the name, and then all of a sudden, I was like, that's the Incredibles guy, and that's the Iron Giants guy, like. Uh, he has such a fun creativity to him that it's just captivating. It's intoxicating. Um, honestly, you feel like he's got the spirit of a little kid making these movies. You can tell that everything that he does is rooted in his childhood and wants to use that to relate to kids today and and, and to adults to help them reach their childhood. I mean, if Ratatouille is a perfect example of that. Um, and so, yeah, I I, I just admire that. Uh, he's able to touch the child in all of us, whether you are still a child or adult or an adult. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so let's get into his filmography. And that would start with something that you may may not expect. And that's with a movie called Batteries Not Included, which is a 1987 movie that Brad Bird does not direct. He wrote it and I haven't seen it. But Aaron did have a couple thoughts that he wanted to give on Batteries Not Included. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I had never heard of this movie until probably two months ago, and I was just like, okay, I guess, Uh, and this is a really interesting movie because you can tell that by the story and by the screen, Brad Bird did the screenplay, you can tell that by the the way that this movie's meant to go, this would be right up Brad Bird's alley, Mm -hmm. but because it's not him and his charm behind the camera... Um, and really like involved in everything that's going on it just doesn't translate quite as well it feels like just another 80s kids movie having to deal with ufos it feels like my favorite martian or to some extent coneheads or something like that it it, there's nothing unique there's nothing special about it Uh, the music is good and that's always been a specialty of brad birds um, because he mostly works with michael g michael gacino but um but yeah i mean and i get that he didn't have a prowess part in the music process um for this movie but uh but that yeah you could tell that there's something really great here but the movie itself is not the realization to that and i think that's all i'm gonna say about that movie interesting so that sounds like it'll be one that maybe in 10 years i'm looking for something to watch and i'll stumble upon it and be like brad bird wrote this i forgot i ever talked about this and you could certainly do worse but you could very easily do better (laughs) that okay that's an interesting way to put it um and i might have to use that to describe other things in the future and i'm gonna steal that um well let's move on to something that we've both seen which is 1999's the iron giant yeah directorial debut Uh, according to imdb a young boy befriends a giant robot from outer space that a paranoid government agent wants to destroy so off the bat i think that introduces uh a theme an idea that Brad Bird kind of comes back to a lot throughout all of his movies. And that's sort of this anti-government tampering um, and anti-authoritarian government. And, you know, the government in this situation is afraid of the other and you immediately think it's bad because apparently Brad Bird asked this question before making the movie. And it was part of his pitch to Disney of what if a gun had a soul and it turns out that it would probably cease to act as a gun. 
So the Iron Giant, you know, he's made to be this weapon, but it's in his, he doesn't want to be the weapon. He wants to, he wants to do good. Uh, you are what you choose to be the main, the main theme of the movie. And I, I really appreciate it because of that. Yeah. Um, and for kind of context, uh, this is, you know, 12 years after batteries not included released. And I mean, first of all, iron giant is 2d animation. So that took a while to, to be made and to be released. Uh, but the other thing is if you listen to, uh, Malton on movies podcast, where they interview Brad bird, he was, he was actually in the, no, never mind. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Michael Guccino that he was in the music department. Never mind. Uh, anyway, the, the Brad Bird episode is really good with him. He kind of explains what he was doing in that time uh, briefly. Um, they really talk more about like The Incredibles and Ratatouille. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, you could tell this movie took a long time to write. Um, it took a long time to animate. It took a long time to make sure it was just right to find the right. Talk about the like the voice cast for an animated movie. I mean, this is right about the time that actual actors are starting to you know, be in these movies. It's not just the voice actors. And so, I mean, you got you know, Vin Diesel in probably his breakout role. I mean, obviously Fast and the Furious in Triple X, but like, you know, he's definitely starting here. And uh, Jennifer Aniston is the mom and um, Shooter McGavin. I don't know. I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but him as the, uh, um, the quirky government agent that's, you know, just a meanie head the whole time. Um, yes, clean to, podcast. To say it nicely. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, great, great voice cast, great animation, uh, especially if you own the Blu-ray. It's it's like a upgraded high def version of the original, and it's it's stellar. And uh, that 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 pitch, that concept of what if a gun had a soul, is is so captivating to me, yeah. and is the perfect way to view this movie as well. And uh, gosh, if you don't cry at the end, then I don't think that you're human where, um, where the, the nuke is coming to the city and there's nothing, this town is going to be obliter- obliterated. Um, and you know, that's it where the um, Hogarth, uh, the iron giant reiter- reiterates to Hogarth, what Hogarth told him earlier and he says you stay I go no following and like it starts to water up and then he flies he grabs the nuke and he's you know chanting Superman and I mean that at that point if you're not already like full bone balling then it, it becomes that point point. and you know it's a little hopeful ending um yeah it's the, the and that part certainly still gets emotional but it, it's the moment that he says I go you stay no following is 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 the waterworks it's the original caesar is home almost exactly <laughs> in a different very different context but it's like let me go I, i'm gonna do what i have to do yeah um i i just think of vin diesel again you know he's the iron giant and he's groot he's just like this big hulking whatever that he goes in records lines for a few days and gets his multi-million dollar paychecks i i love there's a there's clips of him recording lines as Groot just wearing his sunglasses inside just being Vin Diesel the movie star good for you man goals um anything else to say on the Iron Giant unfortunately I don't have I've only seen it once and I don't have a ton to say um I I love the idea of the center of everything being choice and that's kind of at the center of a a lot of good movies with like a very straightforward moral like 
the main character chooses to do this and that's why everything plays out the way that it does um and i i it especially leans into that here in the iron giant and i love and appreciate that idea yeah um i guess the only kind of final note i'll say is that if you if you remember this movie um whether it's just all of a sudden you're remembering it or you have always remembered it but it's been a while since you've seen it it's worth going back to and if you've never heard of this movie, you really should see it. And um, I, I don't want to tell much more about the story because it's it's a great experience. Um, but the it, it really is excellent. And I would venture to say this is the best non-Pixar Disney movie of the 90s. Um, this I mean, this isn't Toy Story, but I mean, I think this is better than Mulan or probably even Aladdin. Um, I would say this is the best non-Pixar Disney movie of the 90s. So I just confirmed the Iron Giant is Warner Bros, not Disney. I'm, Are you sure? I made that, okay. Yeah, I made that mistake earlier. Well, then uh, it's still the best. Non- it's better than any non-Pixar Disney movie <laughs> in the but, 90s. Okay, that works. How about that? <laughs> yeah, it still works. So following the Iron Giant is 2004's the Incredibles, obviously. We mentioned it earlier, and it's one of the best Pixar movies out there. One of the best superhero movies that doesn't get talked about as a great superhero movie. And that's something that Brad Bird himself kind of likes to emphasize, is that animation is not a genre. Animation does not inherently imply just for kids. It implies it's an art form. And that's what he loves about movies, that you can... It's in his in his Twitter bio that you can... Uh, combine a lot of different types of art all together into making film. And that's why he is, that's why he loves filmmaking. But that's what I really appreciate about the Incredibles is that it's a great superhero movie, even though it's animated. Uh, The fact that it's animated shouldn't be in the conversation about why it's great. Uh, And I rewatched it ahead of this podcast for the first time in a while, even though it was one that I've seen a lot. And I, maybe it's just because I'm an adult now and I, and more mature than when I was when I used to watch it. But I never realized how mature and how adult the the movie is. It deals with a lot of serious stuff, um, but in a way that's accessible to everybody. I don't know if that's just because it's animated or what. Maybe we can have that conversation. I don't have enough knowledge on the subject to really get into it deeply, but I think it does a great job of being mature while also widely accessible. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I rewatched this for the first time probably two years ago since, you know, in 10 years. And I, I don't think it held up as well for me, but this movie, but it's, I mean, it's hard when a movie like this is so excellent and you remember it so, so fondly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just made me, I, I knew every moment beat by beat and I just, I didn't really pay too much attention to it because I knew everything that was going. I mean, nothing, nothing about it doesn't hold up. It's just, I guess my experience was different. And, uh, and I'm a little ashamed of that. And it's maybe not want to go back and revisit it, um, because I remember it so fondly. Um, but this is really excellent. And I, and I hope I overcome that. And this, this, this movie really is excellent. Uh, it's, and maybe it's because, you know, when I watched it two years ago, we've seen so many ripoffs of this movie by this point. Um, and so, because this is a great formula, they're, they're very different skill sets that each family member has. Um, I think the setting is really good. The animation style is really cool. I mean, Michael Gacchino, MVP, uh, and you know, I'll mention him literally the rest of the day. <laughs> um, yeah. 
uh, I mean, this is the score is maybe one of the best scores there's ever been to a definitely to an animated movie. And uh, I guess the only other huge note I have is that bear in mind, I was nine when this movie came out, but uh, I I distinctly remember Violet being my first childhood crush, (laughs) like my first deep childhood crush. Right. I actually had a note about that that I noticed watch, rewatching it just now or just a few days ago was they do the trope that she's not attractive to the boy until she changes her hair and pulls her hair back and acts more confident. And I don't know if that's problematic these days, but I, I kind of noticed that you don't really see that as much anymore. And I'm not, I'm not saying nine-year-old you was wrong for having that crush. It's just something that I've, one of those things I've noticed now that I'm older having seen it. Look, nine-year-old me was still even, you know, infatuated with the shy girl. Yeah, it, yeah. In in the movie setting, it's just the Tony Ridinger doesn't find her attractive until all of a right. sudden she moves her hair away from her eyes, and yeah. Um, so that's that's my one big nitpick with it. But I I do love the when everybody's super, no one is, um, and how syndrome, uh, you know how how he approaches that subject um, the idea of never meeting your heroes, because mm. the only reason that syndrome became syndrome is because he met his hero. And there's a, there's a reason to, don't meet your heroes is a saying. So I think the Incredibles explores a lot of stuff. And I think it's worth, there's a lot of movies that I talk about on here that are worth uh, full episode deep dives and maybe in a different sort of format in a different time, I could do that. But for now we can just say that, Incredibles is, I was going to say this unironically, is is incredible. Um, and also, we, we would be totally remiss if we didn't mention Edna Mode. Yeah, well, and I plan on talking about at least Syndrome in depth later. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, Edna Mode, is, Edna, Edna Mode as well. I mean, and Jack-Jack. I mean... Yes, Jack-Jack got his own spinoff short that is possibly just as good as the Incredibles. It's terrific. Yeah. Um, I remember discovering that when I was younger and just being out of my mind at how, how good it was and how, how there's more Incredibles that I can see what was going on while they were off fighting syndrome in the jungle. Jack Jack's home with the babysitter. That whole thing is just so much fun. Yeah. So then following the Incredibles in 2007, Brad Bird went on to make Ratatouille. And I just wanted to mention a tweet that I recently saw that I wasn't looking for it. I just happened to come across it and <laughs> I can't stop thinking about it. Um, it's from at Garf Poop. So if Garf Poop listens to my podcast, here's a shout out to you. Um, <laughs> Garf Poop is actually me. <laughs> it's, my, it's my alt account. <laughs> what a great um, handle. <laughs> I don't know the guy that just showed up on my Twitter feed one day and man, I'm going to try to make it through this. Sometimes I can't read, read funny things that I think are hilarious without (laughs) breaking out laughing before the end. So here's a tweet. The Pope wears a hat because Jesus is under there controlling him Ratatouille style. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. That was just unsolicited, appeared on my Twitter feed, and I thought, this is perfect. I need to bring this up when I talk about Brad Bird on my podcast. So there's my first note on the movie Ratatouille. 
I'm going to let you go first. Do you have any thoughts on Ratatouille, the movie? This is going to be disappointing uh, because I came late to the game. And because um, this was the this was the period of my life that I didn't understand. I mean, remind me of the release year. This is 07, 08. Yep, 07. Okay. Um, this is the period of my life. I was 12 at the point where I didn't understand the difference between Pixar and Disney and Warner Brothers and Universal and DreamWorks and whatever, what have you. Um, mm-hmm. And so I didn't understand that, no, the Pixar ones are the excellent ones. And uh, and so I just didn't get around to seeing it because I just, yeah, this was also, I was 12 years old. I had a brother that was five years older than me and I took a lot after him. And 17 year olds don't typically watch animated movies or get excited about them, especially yeah. ones that look geared to kids. So, um, so I I missed this one when it came out. Uh, but then I realized later that there was a big resurgence for it. No, this movie is excellent. Um, and um, I was just like, I'd never seen it. And so eventually I sat down and watched it. And um, I'm a little let down, uh, but only because everybody for so long had told me it's excellent until I finally got around to watching it because Pixar movies are never on sale. And uh, so eventually I just had to bite the bullet because, and I thought it would be worth it. And I, it's, I don't regret owning it. I, I like it. I, I don't fall in the loved it category, though. Um, I think it. I think it misses the magic, um, which I know is going to be a controversial. I know everybody's going to be. Like, no, this movie is special, magical. I to me, it it misses the magic um, to something like Up or Inside Out has. Um, and I don't. I'm not. Even, I'm not even the biggest proponent of Up, but it, it misses that magic that Wally has. And mm-hmm. um, this is terrific, and this is miles better than you know many animated movies. But this is this is probably going to be lower to your Pixar for me. Interesting. I have it in my Pixar rankings at number 11, and that's only behind really great ones. And now looking at my Pixar rankings, for some reason, I have it behind Finding Dory and Toy Story 4. So in actuality, it's number nine. I'm changing that right now, live on the podcast. I would still put this under Finding Dory and Toy Story 4. Um, Yeah, but it sounds like you like it less than I do. And I, I definitely do like Ratatouille a lot. And that's kind of the point I was trying to get at. Um, And I was, I have a similar story. I'd only seen it once. I saw it at the drive-in when it came out. And for whatever reason, my 12 year old or 11 year old self was being moody that day and, and told my mom, I I didn't want to go, but we went anyway. And I never watched it again until last year. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this movie is actually good because I didn't remember anything about Ratatouille except that. I learned that night that Ratatouille was a dish and not just a play on the main character being a rat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which I, I did. That's I did yeah. Know. I had the same experience. I thought uh, his name was Ratatouille for the longest time. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never had Ratatouille. Um, and then later on, I realized Linguini is actually a food too. And that's the main character of Ratatouille. Um, I mean, Linguini but, is a type of pasta. Yeah. Noodle. Yeah. It's like the flat spaghetti. Yeah. Um, but when I rewatched it like a year ago, I was like, man, this thing's really, really good. And then I rewatched it again around March for my Pixar episode. And that's when I realized how good it was. And again, now rewatching it for this episode, realizing it's actually better than Finding Dory and Toy Story 4, in my opinion. Um, I love the anyone can cook because this whole movie is about uh, criticism of art because it takes place in a restaurant, but... Brad Bird's a filmmaker. He knows what it's like to, to get criticism on his work. So he's talking about criticism, you know, as its own art form, which I think 
I really appreciate that because that's a lot of what I do. Um, whether on my blog, on here, on writer's room, on, you know, Sifpop BECs, anything. So it's nice to see movie makers themselves calling out criticism as an art form in itself. Because a lot of times, like there was recently a whole thing with John Cleese on Twitter saying, you can't critique movies unless you've made them yourselves. It's the same thing as you can't be a sports analyst unless you've played sports yourself. And that's just not true because you watch sports, you watch movies, you have experiences with these things and you have your own thoughts and ideas about them. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that, that Brad Bird went into that here with Ratatouille. Um, it's a very mature movie. Again, it's got like the mature undertones with, you know, the lighthearted main character being an animated rat because there's drinking, which you don't see in a lot of Pixar movies. Uh, like the, the chef tries to get Linguini drunk, which I would never have realized as an 11 year old. There's a scene with dead rats, you know, there's that sort of stuff that would just go right over my head as a kid, but now I can understand and appreciate as an adult. And finally, change is nature. That's one of the lines from from Ratatouille. And I think that's just really profound. And I like thinking about that sort of idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love kind of your, your monologue and criticism there for a little bit. And uh, um, yeah, you're, this movie is very meaningful. It's very impactful. Um, I love the messages it's having to say. I just maybe it's the pacing uh maybe it's i don't particularly care about any of the characters besides remy or um linguini or the critic and at the very end um maybe it's those maybe it's um just because of being a rat like i don't you know the kind of places where remy is kind of discussed you know makes me kind of yeah um I, I don't know what it is about this movie. And, you know, maybe if I rewatched it today, maybe I'd be in the same camp. But, no, I would put this um, – I mean, this is better than Cars 2, obviously. But um, I, I would probably put this – I like this uh, maybe – gosh, it, and this is the hard part about talking about Pixar rankings because aside from Cars 2, they're all at least really good. Um, they're all at least, you know, 8 out of 10s. And so I would probably put this pretty close to, to Onward, which is where I have that. It's like an 8 out of 10. Um, I, I, I think I do prefer this to up still, uh, but that might be the only other Pixar movie that I prefer it to. Yeah. Besides sounds... cars too, or in the first cars. I don't like the first car that much. Interesting. I, I do like the first cars. It sounds like you're a bit higher on Pixar as a whole than I am, because when it comes to like the good dinosaur or monsters university, I don't think those are very good. I think um, they're okay, but not eight. But I do agree with just about everything else being about a seven and or seven or eight and above. I guess the caveat being I haven't seen the Good Dinosaur yet, gotcha. um, and I didn't like Monsters University when it came out, but it's, it grows on me. And the last thing I'll mention about Ratatouille is that it's also scored by Michael Giacchino, and it doesn't really sound like Michael Giacchino what you'd normally expect from him, but it's still excellent. I love the Ratatouille score a lot, so I wanted yep. to throw that out there. And following Ratatouille, Brad Bird came and directed his first live action movie with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yep. I think this one kind of put Mission Impossible back on the map, if I remember history right. Because people think 
the first one's solid. The second one's not very good. The third one's okay. But then this one showed what it could really, really do with Ethan Hunt going up the Burj Khalifa. Um, there's a lot of great humor in it. A lot of that is probably from Brad Bird and Simon Pegg's involvement, obviously. I, th- I This is my second favorite Mission Impossible movie. Is your first Fallout? Yeah. Okay. Um I think I think uh I think you're right in that this showed the potential of what this franchise could be, but I think 3 started to put it on the map again because I I think the first gosh, I really don't like the first one that much uh and I don't like the second one at all, um which that's not an uncommon opinion. Um no. but I think that kind of the third one kind of brought it back into the realm. I mean, we had some big names on it. JJ Abrams directed it and um, I think it, I think it kind of showed some promise, but it, it wasn't the full potential of what it could be. I love Mission Impossible Three. I rewatched it not too long ago with my wife, and I think it's, I think it's better than most people think it is. Um, it's sure it's not to the quality of the four, five, or six, but it's still really solid. Um, and they did some new interesting things um, that were really fun. And um, we're not here to talk about Mission Impossible Three, but because we're here to talk about Ghost Ghost Protocol. But yes, this is the one that really put it on the map of this is what this franchise could be because this is the first one filmed in IMAX, um, at least some scenes in IMAX. And I mean, the Burj Khalifa scene is just terrific, and um, and some like some of the other set pieces are incredible. And I mean, you have some additions to the cast. Brandt, I think, is my favorite Mission Impossible character. Um, really, I, I I really think that um, I you can you can tell this movie that probably as they were writing it, um, they were trying to Tom Cruise was trying to phase out of this franchise, uh, and they were going to set up Jeremy Renner since he was an up and comer, but they you know I think Tom Cruise had a change of mind because the fourth one wound up being so excellent, and because of the stunts grew bigger and. Anyway, so you could tell that they were kind of grooming Brant to take over the franchise at some point, and um, I, I think his I think his character is is fun, is clever. I'm a big Jeremy Renner fan, and uh, and he has an emotional weight to him that guilt that he carries uh, for most of the movie that you can tell there's something, but you don't actually get to address it for a while. And when it, you finally do, do, it makes sense, and it's a big revelation. And I. I love this movie and uh, it is my favorite Mission Impossible movie. I don't think it's the most watchable Mission Impossible movie because that clearly goes to Fallout. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as a story, as a whole, with the characters we're given, I do think I prefer Ghost Protocol. Yeah, you can definitely see Brant sort of being groomed because Ethan Hunt doesn't have a ton of characterization to him throughout six movies. It's He has a wife starting in the third one. And then, you know, that's kind of his backstory in the other two or in the other three, but in the first two, there's not a lot with him character wise, but you're right. They're starting to give Brant some characterization here. I really don't remember rogue nation that much. I haven't seen it more than once. I don't think, but you have that characterization with Brant that you can see that like, we're actually going to give him some sort of motivation here. Um, grooming him to take on the franchise but obviously tom cruise uh started a bromance i'll say with christopher McQuarrie, and that's why they're making they made rogue, rogue nation and fallout and i think they're gonna make seven and eight together yep um, yeah i mean i like that christopher christopher McQuarrie has the reins here i think he's terrific um at this franchise 
Um, but I, th- you know, Brad Bird walked so he could run. Uh, but Brad Bird yeah, exactly. also, but Brad Bird also freaking ran in this movie. Um, this Brad is, Bird uh, ran so Macquarie could sprint. You could say. I, I might even say that, you know, Brad Bird ran so Macquarie could continue to run. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> sure, that works too. Because I told you, I think this is my favorite Mission Impossible. Yeah. Um, it, it's not the most watchable, uh, but I. Yeah, and and of Rogue Nation was, uh, I remember when it came out, people were like, "Oh, this is even better." The series just keeps on getting better, and I was just like, "This isn't better than Ghost Protocol. This is great." But and a lot of it was the absence of Brant because this was filming right around the time Avengers: Age of Ultron was. So, as for Ghost Protocol, I want to call out just a couple things. I think the hallway scene when they have that projector screen thing is just so so great. Um, it really it shows that they're going to have a lot of fun gadgets, this movie. And that's one of my favorite things about the movie is that along with the typical great action, there's great gadgets and like the gloves when Ethan is climbing the Burj Khalifa where blue means glue and red means dead. Um, I, that's one of the best lines in the whole movie. And it's only because of Simon Pegg's impeccable delivery that it works so perfectly. Uh, But the best part about it is that the gadgets don't always work the way that they're supposed to. And it shows stuff isn't going to go the way that you planned, but you still need to get it done anyway. And I love how big movies that are just supposed to be completely action, something like Mission Impossible, you're able to get in these really human ideas and messages into them. And I think that that's what the best Mission Impossible movies, in my opinion, four and six do do the best. Um, So unless you have anything else to say about Ghost Protocol, I think we're going to move on. I'll just wrap up saying I think the only knock I have against the movie is both the villain and his plan are pretty stock. And that's about it. Uh, That's that's all I'll say. I think everything else is excellent. Yeah, I forgive stock villains and something like Mission Impossible when everything else is so good. Like Tom Cruise almost outruns a sandstorm in this movie. So I don't don't mind a a stock villain or him saying mission accomplished at the end, you know, because they're they're very self-aware in doing those things. Right. So after 2011's Ghost Protocol, Brad Bird went on to something bigger and better, supposedly with Disney and Tomorrowland. Um, I think this was him trying to be like, I don't need a franchise. I don't need Pixar. I can do something original. Even though Tomorrowland is the whole area at Disney, at Disney World, um, it's still more original than Mission Impossible, obviously, and then it's different than doing a a Pixar movie or an animated movie. And I don't... This is one that neither of us had seen, right? You you hadn't seen this up until recently. No, I hadn't. Yeah, so this is one we both watched for the first time recently, and I think it just kind of lives up to its reputation of not being much more than okay. Uh, I think there's some really, really interesting stuff, especially towards the end but I think it takes way too long to get to the interesting stuff at the end. Um, also, I want to call out quick, uh, heck you Disney plus for showing this as on your service, but then saying not available to September, 2021, <laughs> you and I went to watch this on Disney plus separately. And we saw the September it's coming in September. We went to watch it in September and then realized it said 2021 and not 2020. So I don't like that Disney plus kind of teases you that far out. Um, 
but yeah, let, let's hear some of your thoughts on Tomorrowland. Um, I, I skipped this movie because um, I, I don't think I'd seen a trailer for this one. And I mean, this was the time I was in college and I didn't watch many trailers because I didn't have TV in college. Mm. Um, and so uh, it was just kind of one that flew under the radar. And, uh, and then when it came out, everybody was like, man, Brad Bird made a bad movie. And, right. uh, and, and so I was like, okay, so I'll just stay away from it. And so I did. But then with this podcast, I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And I pulled up a trailer and watched it with my wife who had seen it and really liked it. Um, um, and I was, just, I saw the trailer. I'm like, that's the movie that people hate. Like this looks good. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was really excited to watch it. And so we did. And um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm opposite of you. Um, I think some of the very end is pretty meaningful, but I really love the world. Um, I really love specifically the, like the first 30 minutes. I think the middle drags a really long and I don't particularly care. Like I love the whole like George Clooney as a boy and, mm-hmm. and when the, the girl eventually meets teams up with George Clooney. Um, but I don't like, re- I don't really care about any of the, the girl's home life with Tim McGraw and um, her, yeah. her brother um, who I, uh, is in, is the, is the kid in Looper. Yes. Uh, he's yes. the rainmaker. And, uh, and and so I, th- I think that there was, uh, it, it's a little stretched out in in the middle. And I'm, I I do agree with you. I think the beginning is solid and interesting, and I I like I think it's interesting that it specifically mentions Disney and Walt Disney World and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting, you know, Tomorrowland to be this magical place, whatever. Um, but they're making it like a real world kind of thing talking about inspiring others and that's how you can make the world a better place. Um, and the girl, she's all optimistic when she's talking about going up to the stars, her mom says, but what if there's nothing up there? And she says, what if there's everything, you know, there's just a lot of interesting ideas, but I think I completely agree with you actually that the middle just kind of drags and is boring and I don't care until maybe the last half hour because I thought watching the first 20, 30 minutes, like, okay, I'm into this. Maybe this could be solid. And then it just started, it hit the brakes. It didn't even like slow down. It just hit the brakes. And then it kind of speeds up again at the end. But yeah, from, from the Eiffel Tower to the real, like the, I mean, we already knew, but the actual revelation that Hugh Laurie is a bad guy, I don't care about. Not even a little bit. Yeah. It's so obvious that Hugh Laurie is going to turn out to be the bad guy. Right. Um, It's just typical movie trope. Yep. Um, it deals with like catastrophes involving climate change and social unrest. Um, talks about the only way to save the future from those awful things is through pe- people who haven't given up. And I think that's really, really interesting. I like that idea a lot because even today, people seem to just be resigned to catastrophe, re- resigned to the end of the world apocalypse, you know, but there's hope if people just act positively, think positively and try to enact, the, you know, be the change you want to see. Um, that's a cringy line that you hear all the time, but it's it's true. There's a reason that things like that are said over and over. So I, I really like that. I like that idea um, and how he plays with it. I just wish the rest of the movie worked as well as the ideas. Yeah. And the last thing I'll mention um there's a line where the main girl character, her name is... Some, her name is uh, main girl character, I think. 
Her name is Casey. Um, Casey, main girl character, Newton. Wow, I can't believe that's her actual <laughs> name. Um, no, she says to George Clooney, um, don't we like make our own destiny and stuff? And I wanted don't to say ask. Stuff. I was just, <laughs> just ask, what, it, what would Holland March say to that? Don't say and stuff. Just say, don't we like make our own destiny? <laughs> Perfect. I love that line. Um, Me too. <laughs> for those who don't know, that's a nice guy's reference. So Tomorrowland, okay movie, borderline solid movie. Check it out if you want. Maybe wait until it comes on Disney Plus in September of 2021. Um, Still mad about that. But let's move on to Incredibles 2, which was 2018 release. Incredibles 2, I did not like it the first time. It was the same... It was the same problem as Whiplash, where I got hung up on one scene and then I was in a bad mood for the rest of the movie and thought it was bad. Is um, the scene the reveal of the the screen? What's the the screen, the screen slaver? Slaver. That's a cool name, by the way. It is a cool name. Um, was it? The I reveal? rewatched it. No, it's not that reveal. Okay. I rewatched the movie and I don't think it's as bad as I did then, but I still don't think it's that great. Um, so I'm not gonna. That's where the comparison to Whiplash ends. The The scene was when Jack-Jack fights a raccoon for an extended period of time. It just seemed so out of place and against the rules of the world. It was like, okay, I believe they're superheroes, but why is a raccoon acting like a sentient being? This is just really weird to me. And I got hung up on that and thought it was dumb and then thought the rest of the movie was dumb. So I don't think the whole movie's dumb anymore. I, again, I like the ideas. There's a line that says politicians don't understand people who do good simply because it's right. Um, there's stuff about news media manipulating what the audiences see and how that affects the ideas that people have. Um, it critiques consumerism. Uh, there's great lines like Dash saying, is she having adolescence? You know, there's there's a lot of fun stuff in there. But overall, it kind of devolves into like a lesser avengers movie with just like a bunch of superheroes doing superhero stuff at the end um i like how the action is done but it's not as compelling as the first movie it's basically a glorified scooby-doo episode and i know how you ranted about how you love scooby-doo but i don't think that's what you want with the incredible sequel yeah i mean I'm, i'm i'm like you i didn't uh I didn't like the movie. I saw it in theaters uh, opening weekend, I think. And I, I was just like, man, like what a letdown. And part of it is you have 10 years of buildup between the sequels and man, what a, what a letdown. And the other part is just in general, you know, if this was, I don't know, there's, 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 it's pretty predictable. There's some of the twists that I just don't follow along with. Um, I don't particularly like the finale um, and one thing that's really grown in my disdain of this movie, is, and not that I disdain the whole movie, but my biggest problem with this movie is that all of the character development from the first one is thrown out the window for the second one. And they're having to relearn the same lessons that like each character is having to relearn the same lessons that they learned in the first one. And it's like by, you know, and part of the, and as a family, not just as an individual, as a family, because yeah. at the end they determined that they work better as a group. But then all of a sudden, you know, there's the um, moms going on a solo project and the whole story plot of 
we can't trust superheroes anymore and so they're going to be outlawed and it's like this is it's the same thing happens at the very beginning of the it's just like you're giving me the same movie with not even a different skin because the animation of the incredibles one is so amazing like this isn't even like a you know polished up re- remake reboot whatever this is the same movie again with different jokes sure but a less compelling less interesting villain and i i don't know i didn't i didn't i didn't really like it that much and um i liked it more the second time um but this is a little bit lower than ratatouille for me i think in the pixar rankings yeah it's definitely a much much worse villain and that's one of its biggest problems i think that the villain is so good in the first one but is not in this one um you get behind the the family coming together to fight syndrome because he's compelling as a character whereas this is a very very typical and a very stereotypical villain origin story it's like the superhero is wronging my parents in some way so i want to get back at them whereas syndrome it was personal <laughs> you know it sounds like a a bad movie sequel tagline it's like this time it's personal but that's the whole thing of what makes syndrome compelling um i I still think it's solid it's towards the very bottom of my pixar rankings but yeah the incredibles 2 is you know i don't think it's really a worthy sequel but it is a solid movie in its own right just because of the things that it talks about i think that's all i have to say about incredibles 2 yeah um yeah i think i'll just echo that I'll probably land somewhere about a 7 out of 10 for this one. Yeah, I'm probably around a 6. Yeah, so pretty similar. I, th- I think I was about a 5 the first time I watched it. Yeah, I was I was at a 4, so that's an upgrade of 2 for both of us. Yeah. So with that, let's get on to our quick rankings of the Brad Bird movies. And this will be from least favorite to favorite and doesn't really require explanation because we've talked about them all just now. So I'll go first real quick. Uh, at the bottom, number six, Incredibles 2, followed by number five, Tomorrowland, four, The Iron Giant, three, Ratatouille, two, Mission Impossible Gross Protocol, and one, The Incredibles. What about you? Um, I'm going to, I mean, if we're batteries not included is in here, that's at the bottom. Um, then I'll go Tomorrowland, The Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, The Incredibles, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, and The Iron Giant. Sweet. So, so a little bit of variation between our two lists. Yeah, just a little bit. As much as six movies allows. Right. Um, with that, we're going to do our Mount Rushmore of Brad Bird characters. Mount Rushmore is four faces. We're going to call it Mount Bird. And we're going to decide our four favorite and most important Brad Bird characters uh, from the movies that he's had. So I think right off the bat, the Iron Giant has to go on there because yep. we wouldn't have Brad Bird if it wasn't for the Iron Giant and the character of the Iron Giant himself. Um, do you want to throw someone else out? It, I mean, yeah, this is very clearly, it's got to be four of these five. Um, I'm going to throw it Brent from Mission Impossible. I guess we could, yeah, because he made such a big mark on the Mission Impossible franchise. Brant is a character specific to his first movie and it was fleshed out with him because throwing Ethan Hunt on there wouldn't really work because right. Ethan Hunt's been, I don't know, 
well, had the reins taken by some of the other directors. When Simon Pegg was also in the third movie, but this yeah. is this is the first Jeremy Renner appearance in the Mission Impossible, so I would count him as a Brad Bird character. Uh, I'll agree with you there. So first two, Iron Giant and Brant from Mission Impossible. Uh, I want to put on Remy from Ratatouille, just because he's the main character, and I think Ratatouille is pretty great. But that's not a. I have to have it on there. So who else do you have? Uh, I would personally not put Remy in my top five. Uh, I would put Edna Mode in my top five. Edna Mode. Um, see, I'm between her and Mr. Incredible because I like to have like one from each movie just to yeah. get a, a feel of his whole um, his whole filmography. So if we do, <laughs> we could do like we did with Planet of the Apes. If we do Edna Mode, since she has such a big nose, we can carve uh, Mister Incredible's face inside her nose. Well, here, here's what I'll tell you: is the other three of the all three of the other one of, ones of mine are from the Incredibles, but none of them are Mister Incredible because the other two I have are Jack Jack and Syndrome, and because Jack Jack's so fun, he's lovable. Um, he's probably the one that I feel most comfortable kicking off because he's entirely you know, motion. Like, there's not. You know, a voice or he doesn't even get a ton of screen time I do, I do love the raccoon fight um uh but syndrome i think is 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 an incredible character it's it's a good warning message message of of how s- these superheroes can create supervillains and by how neglect can really have an impact on people and the voice acting is great for that i had no idea for years that that was jason lee mm-hmm. um he's he's terrific in that and uh he's he's got he's not got he doesn't have a stock villain plan he's not a stock villain villain by any means um honestly i might even fight for syndrome harder than edna mode but um i would be fine with either of the two on there so let's go with syndrome because maybe put we... mr incredible up in syndrome's hair if you want <laughs> perfect so yeah let's go with syndrome because we were talking about how the biggest difference between the two incredibles movies is uh the quality and in villains so because syndrome is so well done let's put him on there and then i only wanted to put mr incredible because it's called the incredibles and he's the main character but i i agree that syndrome is probably a better overall character so let's put syndrome there with uh mr incredible somewhere in his hair and edna maybe like hiding in his chin or something um and then fourth and the designed the face mask or his eye mask <laughs> yes perfect yeah uh and then fourth we'll put so, uh remy yeah so i'm okay with that we can put remy as the last one just um, for variety well yeah and i mean if we're gonna go for different movies i mean i'd pick remy over anybody in tomorrowland or right. anybody from well any of the new people from i mean I mean, Frozone probably also deserves to be in the conversation, but <laughs> Frozone's just a great side character, I think. But I don't know if he's like the yeah. best. Um, that, the where's fair. my super suit? We have to shout that out. Um, is... I just feel like we haven't talked about Frozone at all yet, and so yeah, you're you're right. Where's we, my I mean, super suit? Is an all time scene. Yeah, exactly. Um, so with that, Mount Bird is going to consist of the Iron Giant. Um, Brant from Mission Impossible, Remy from Ratatouille, and Syndrome from The Incredibles. I'm good with that. And that'll take us to our closing, the end of the episode. Aaron, thank you for coming on, uh, for talking about Brad Bird and lots of other stuff. 
Where can people find you apart from this singular singular episode? Yeah, so as we've talked about a lot, um, you can find me at Sip Pop Writers Room. That's every Wednesday. And uh, we'll go live. Robert's on once a month. Uh, but I'm uh, particularly fond of all the episodes, including the ones that Robert isn't on. Um, so you should check out any episode on Sip Pop Writers Room. And um, you can check me out on Twitter or on Letterboxd at Schweitcastle. That's S-C-H, White Castle, like the restaurant that Harold and Kumar goes to. Yeah, every episode of Writer's Room is a lot of fun. I like listening to that podcast. Aaron's a great host. Um, so today, as usual, I have a corresponding blog post. Uh, it's talking about the themes of Brad Bird's movies. As you can tell, I very much am interested and intrigued by those themes, so I decided I would write about them. Um, you can check out the blog at roberts-thoughts.com. Find me at Twitter at underscore Rob's Thoughts and on Instagram at Robert's Thoughts. And in the meantime, you can get excited for the next episode of the Robert's Thoughts movie cast. My dad is going to be back on and we're going to be tackling a singular movie again. And that movie is going to be the Shawshank Redemption. So until we talk about the Shawshank Redemption, I want to say thank you to Aaron for coming on. Thank you to Luke for the podcast artwork, for Laura for the uh, intro and outro music, and to you for listening. So until next time, just remember, anyone can cook. <laughs>